According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me again this morning in Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Actually, we're in the end of chapter 21, first part of chapter 22. Dealing with the parable of the landowner from last week and then moving on to the parable of the marriage feast. Points three and four, if you are uh, following in the outline. All right. We've actually been uh, in this episode for a couple of Wednesdays now, detailing the increasing conflict, the challenging tone of the Sanhedrin, um, not only hostile to what he had to say, but even interrupting his class to do so, uh, challenging his authority and, uh, and so forth. So we've had a lot of back and forth. Uh, they had a question for him, and he wouldn't answer until they answered a question of his own, and they wouldn't answer that. So he told them to, uh, that he wouldn't answer their question either. And then he went on to ask him some more questions. And he gave him a parable of two sons and then the parable of the landowner. And we're going to uh, be wrapping that up today and then uh, detailing the marriage feast in chapter 22. So it's good information, a lot of teaching, a lot of uh, prophetic teaching looking forward. And you can tell based on <clears throat> particularly this uh, message here today with the, uh, the marriage feast. It's a message he's given in the past, but it's getting, <clears throat> it's getting edgier. It's getting uh, more forceful because he's now within 72 hours of, of dying on the cross. So um, some of the differences between the marriage feast as it's told in Luke 14 and the marriage feast as it's told in Matthew 22, I think they're, they're noteworthy. And uh, we'll, we'll make those observations here today. All right, let's take a moment for silent prayer, making sure we're filled with Holy Spirit, prepared to handle spiritual truth, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and uh, we're looking to you, Father, to provide uh, for the entirety of this class. If uh, it's your will for the uh, voice to last that long, then, uh, Father, then just bless our study today. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. As I say, we are in the midst of main point three, and I failed to jot down the slide number, so I'll just take a guess. Nope. Parable of the landowner. There we go. Slide seven. I should have guessed. All right. So point three in the outline, the parable of the landowner and uh, recognizing that uh, this is a character we're accustomed to from other portions of the Gospels, that oikodespates, oikos meaning house, the house despot, uh, the despotes is, uh, is an authority term. And uh, it does not have all the negative connotations that the modern English word despot has. We've pretty much limited despot to only a negative application. But Christ is a despot, and uh, he is obviously perfect and righteous in all of his despotic authority over each one of us. So uh, we're not going to just have a knee-jerk reaction to the term because of the way that it's used in, uh, in our modern English usage. Uh, secondly, well, let's go through this. Look at everything the landowner did. He planted, he walled, he dug, he built, he rented, and then he went. He had done everything imaginable for the sake of this uh, developed property here. And then we're introduced to the tenant farmers, Georgos. If you know anybody named George, the, the given name George comes from Georgos, a worker of the earth. And it uh, could be a farmer, could be a vine dresser, could be anybody involved in agricultural pursuits would be called a Georgos, a worker of the of the earth. And it's interesting as we observe their attitudes, uh, they did not plant, they did not wall, they did not dig, they did not build. Um, they basically showed up and in agreement uh, with uh, the uh, owner who rented to them. So I can just grab the uh, little bit of the scripture here. Uh, it starts in verse 33, and, and everything that he does is described there in that verse. The landowner who planted the vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, built the tower. There's no workers anywhere in view up to that point. And then he rented it out to vine growers, to the Georgoi, the tenant farmers. Now they finally arrive. And they arrive under a contractual agreement. They've entered into a covenant. 
They've entered into a treaty or a contract. They have agreed to work his land in exchange for uh, his due and for their wages and so forth. And then he went on a journey, keeping in mind, of course, that uh, he had other options available to him other than renting it out to vine growers, other than leasing this property to to free men. He could have simply uh, staffed it with purchased slaves and uh, and worked it that way. He had every right to do so in his culture and in the, the day and age in which he lived. But he chose not to use slave labor and chose to lease it out for these uh, these tenant farmers, the vine growers, and went on a journey. And so these tenant farmers illustrate a panorama of satanic philosophies, everything they think they're entitled to, everything they think that they've earned and they've produced. But it's not their farm, no matter what their philosophies might uh, might tell them. All right, in the aftermath of this, under point B, the religious leaders uh, Jesus addressed understood, that, uh, understood the message that he was delivering, realizing too late that they were in the story. And we pick up on that in verses 41 and 45. <coughs> They're right on target when uh, they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. The proceeds belong to him, not to them. He, is the, he has the authority. He has the ownership of the property. And uh, not until verse 45 do they finally understand that uh, he was speaking about them. <clears throat> Point C. And this is important. I'm, I want to spend some time on this. And if I spend too much time on this and we don't quite get to the parable of the marriage feast, well, yeah, I guess that'll wait until after Kiev. But... Uh, This is too important because there's too much bad teaching out there related to this. Jesus rightly related his present generation with prophesied rejection of the Christ. Notice now, Jesus said to them, did you never read the scriptures? (laughs) Okay, that's fighting words to these Pharisees. I mean, they read the scriptures. They've been reading the scriptures. They've been memorizing the scriptures. Okay. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And he's quoting from Psalm 118, and we're going to turn back there in just a moment. All right. So therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. I'm stopping right there because this is the problem verse. It's the problem verse the way that people use it today to validate and justify their bad theology. Okay. Now, if you didn't have anything else in the Bible, if this was the only passage you had to work with, and you just simply read that at face value, you might be led to believe something comparable to, say, replacement theology. Right? Well, see, well, right here, look, God's throwing away his whole plan for Israel. They weren't worthy of it. He's taking it away from them. He's giving it to somebody else. Okay? The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And uh, if, if you're going to come to that conclusion, then... On the basis of this verse, then you realize that there are dozens or hundreds of other passages that you have to just ignore, dismiss, or otherwise uh, do do crazy things with in order to come to that conclusion. No, there are better understandings of this passage. You don't have to go to replacement theology because of this verse. All right. That's why I want to spend the time with it here. And then finally, his last word on this is verse 44. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And uh, I find it quite interesting how they're very happy to try to, the replacement folks are very happy to take verse 43 as if it supports their their uh, situation, and yet they don't want to pay attention to verse 44, which once again brings Daniel and other Old Testament prophecies right back into focus again. God's not done with Israel, and he's not going to take his uh, kingdom away from the uh, Jews and give it to the Gentiles uh, as, you know, replacement people try to say. All right, so hold your finger here. Let's look back at Psalm 118 for just a moment. Psalm 118. Because there's other things going on in that psalm and things that have to be understood both from a first advent and a second advent approach. If you can't find Psalm 118, just find Psalm 119 and back up one. Okay, that might be easier. Um, <laughs> As you'll notice here, Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Uh, first of all, Recognize that this is nestled in the midst of a much larger message. 
You observe that? I mean, it's right in the middle of a big message. It's 29 verses long in the psalm. And even if you take it back to verse 19 for its immediate context, you understand there's a lot going on in this psalm. Um, but where is it going with this? The, um, without reading all of all 29 verses on this, the, um, I guess verse 10, all nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I will surely cut them off. Let me reword this for our, our, uh, use. Um, they've got us surrounded, so we've got them exactly where we want them. (laughs) Okay. When the armies are surrounding Jerusalem at Armageddon, okay, at Second Advent, as, and they think they're right there on the verge of the complete annihilation of the Jewish people, uh, understand what they've truly done is they've gathered all the forces of darkness into one place. And Jesus Christ is going to deal with them finally, totally. He's going to deliver his people. And so when Jerusalem is surrounded, when it looks hopeless, that's exactly the moment of their deliverance. And that's a, that's a glorious thing. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. So we have all these verses here. We're surrounded. They're in trouble. <laughs> okay. And I love that. Uh, so the Lord is my strength and my song has become my salvation there in verse 14. So um, this is uh, a recognition of victory here. Uh, down to verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. So now we're looking ahead into second advent. We're looking forward to the gates. We're looking forward to the righteous that are, uh, that are going to inherit the earth and all the things there. But it's not going to come without a rejection at first advent. And that gets described in verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And... Um, all the application that comes with this. The fact that he came to his own and his own received him not. The, uh, the issue that Israel has rejected their, their king. So this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You think that verse applies to any old day of the week or any old day you just happen to wake up and decide to claim it? Or is there, in fact, a very specific day that God has in mind? All right. Now, I don't mind claiming it on a general basis, but still, I've got I to gotta remember every time I do try to claim it that I say, wait a minute, stop right there. This is a day of grace. I'm thankful God gave me today. But let me not lose track of the fact that when this day comes, then it is uh, going to be a unique day in the history of mankind. O Lord, do, sage, we beseech, uh, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity and this is the language of uh, palm monday this is the language of hosanna this is the language of a people accepting their king O lord do save blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord we have blessed you from the house of the lord this is going to be their cry at second advent when they repent of what they've done and when they accept the king they could have accepted and should have accepted at uh, at first advent all right well there's um just wanted you to see that verse 22 and 23 don't sit by themselves. In fact, they sit in the same context as verses 25 and 26. Okay, so understand that. that Psalm 118 speaks to both first advent and second advent in a totality. So understand, first of all, sub point one, the consequences of this generation's rejection must also be consistent with prophesied acceptance of the Christ. The consequences of this generation's rejection must also be consistent with prophesied acceptance of the Christ. Because the Old Testament prophesied both. They prophesied the rejection and the acceptance, the ultimate eventual acceptance. Both were prophesied in the Old Testament. So you can't just take this one verse about this generation's rejection and say, okay, that's it. It's over. That's all there is to say about it. They lose. They're going to lose their stewardship. It's the kingdom's taken away from them. It's given to somebody else. Okay. You understand the damage you're doing when you're doing that? Because you're only accepting half of what the Old Testament had to say. The Old Testament spoke about the rejection. Yes. So Jesus says, you know, rightly did the scripture say 
But the, the, the prophecy also talked about the ultimate, eventual entrance into the gates through righteousness. Can't ignore that. And so we cannot interpret Matthew 22 in any way that only pays attention to half of what the Old Testament had to say. It's not fair to the Old Testament to, to do it that way. So uh, that's why we have to pay attention to verses 24 through 26. That's why we need to understand the other references Jesus made to this psalm. Uh, when, for example, on Palm Monday, when they're uh, singing Hosanna and the things there. So we just read Psalm 118. Let's look at Matthew 21, 9 and Matthew 23, 39. You'll see what I'm talking about. Matthew 21, 9. This is in the triumphal entry chapter. And the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna, you understand, is that expression, do save. Okay, save now. Do save. From what we just read in, in Psalm 118. Oh, Lord, do save. Okay. And so there they're singing it. Now, we... The replacement theology people tell you, well, see, right there, it's, it's been fulfilled. It is, hey, Doug, it has happened, all right? Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But now look, two chapters later, over to chapter 23. Chapter 23 and verse 39. They sang it on Palm Monday, but Jesus doesn't say that that was the last time they're going to sing it. And he does not say that that was actually the fulfillment of what Psalm 118 was dealing with. Because they have to sing it again. And they're going to sing it again before he can become their king. So Matthew 23 and verse 39. And this uh, we'll be dealing with here in the night in which he's betrayed. Um, starting in verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Okay, this is huge because this is this is something you got to deal with as you as you balance sovereignty with volition. God's absolute sovereignty and human beings, uh, positive and negative volition. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there it is again, the quotation from Psalm 118. All right. So you understand this is here in Matthew 23. This is after the triumphal entry of Matthew 21. So that doesn't count. You can't point to Palm Monday and say there that that counted. That was fulfilled. You can't say that counts. It doesn't count because Jesus says it doesn't count. Right. Three days after Palm Monday, he's here telling them. This nation has to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Jewish nation has to acknowledge Jesus as their Christ. All right. They have to they have to confess the reality of Psalm 118 in order for Christ to return as their as their king. So. Understand this is this is why you just can't take the kingdom away from the Jews and give it to Gentiles or give it to the church or give it to anybody else. Okay, it's being taken from this generation and it's being given to the coming generation of Jews, the coming generation of Israel, the one who will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All right. That's the that's the quick and easy answer. And they're not going to say, you understand what it's going to take for, to get them to say that? You understand the kind of wrath poured out that it's going to take to humble Israel? So to the point where they will say that? Right now, they're not ready to say it. They're not, they haven't been humbled yet. That'll become a part of our study as well. So, if the rejection itself is prophesied, then the consequences have to be consistent with what was prophesied. The consequences of that rejection must also be consistent with what Psalm 118 tells us is the eventual prophesied acceptance of the Christ. Point two, then, replacement theology is not an acceptable solution. Replacement theology is not an acceptable solution. Because while it may appear to agree with the first part of this, that Israel has rejected their king, it does not agree with the totality of the Psalm 118 prophecy. It does not agree with the eventual 
restoration of Israel, the repentance of Israel, the acceptance of their Messiah, their entrance into uh, the millennial kingdom. It's completely at odds with Romans chapter 11, verses 1 and 25. Really, chapters 9, 10, and 11, there's a three-chapter stretch in Romans that details God's uh, present dealings with uh, and how His present dealings with Israel are on hold. The future salvation of Israel at second advent is the only acceptable solution. And this is compatible with Romans 11:26, compatible with Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. And so, we'll look at those verses here momentarily, but if you're looking with me at verse 43 here of Matthew 22, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Understand, that's you, this generation. The nation of Israel of this generation. And it will be given to a people producing the fruit of it. It's still the Jewish people, but it's the Jewish people of some 2,000 years later. It's going to be the tribulational generation. Those that accept the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. Those that are saved after the rapture of the church. Those who confess, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they will be the people producing the fruit of it. And so he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. That is the, um, the um, Jewish rejection of the Christ in the first century, and they're going to be broken to pieces. The, the, the consequences for uh, the Jews in that uh, destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD are absolutely, uh, they're hard to read, they're hard to think about. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And that's the stone coming down in second advent, crushing the statue of Daniel like, uh, like dust. All right. So replacement theology is not acceptable. Romans 11, verses 1 and 25. If you need some, just some quick verses, you have to answer a replacement person. And these should settle it in your mind. They, they think they've got answers for these verses too, but they're... Uh, <coughs> Kind of weasel answers, really. Romans 11.1 1, I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. Is God done with Israel? No. He can't be. He'll be done with them as soon as uh, we reach infinity because He's made eternal promises to them. And until eternal promises expire, He's not done with them. So God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. And he talks about his racial lineage there. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Huge. Whom he foreknew. Did he have a clue they were going to reject him at first advent? Of course he did. More than a clue. He foreknew it before the foundation of the world. He even designed his, the plan for his son. He was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. So the, the killing of the Christ and the rejection of the king, none of that was going to you know, anger God and cause him just to chuck everything and say, all right, fine, I'm done with you guys. I'm going to turn now to something else. Okay, that's crazy. He cannot reject the people whom he foreknew. They're his people. And he selected them with a full foreknowledge of what, how they were going to reject their Christ. And... Uh, Basically, taking you down through this entire chapter, look at the end of the chapter now, or further down, verse 25. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Now, every scripture, of course, you don't want to be ignorant of. But when Paul says, I do not want you to be uninformed, these are the particular areas that Satan uses and manipulates for false teaching. And... Uh, Paul didn't want us to get mixed up in that, wise in our own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That it's only for a season, it's only for a purpose, for a limited duration, that his plan for them is on hold. And that they're under this partial hardening state. But they will be restored. All right, They will be restored. When the outworking of the bride is complete, Israel will be restored. In fact, all Israel will be saved. In verse 26, all Israel will be saved. And, of course, at the completion of the tribulation of Israel, all believing Jews will enter into their millennial glory and all unbelieving Jews will be, uh, will be cast into hell. So all Israel will be saved. And it goes on to describe this. 
The future salvation of Israel at second advent is the only acceptable solution. So when Jesus says the kingdom has been taken from you and given to a people who will bear the fruit of it, it's being taken from the Jews of this generation and given to the tribulational Jews who will bear the fruit of it and will endure the, uh, the affliction by Satan's hand with Antichrist and everything else. And uh, they will receive their kingdom at the second advent of Jesus Christ. And this, by the way, also has its information to be found at Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. <coughs> Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will declare, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Is that made with the church? Thank you. <laughs> All right. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. All right. Was that with the church? Nope. All right. Thank you. Did the church come through the Red Sea? Nope. All right. Thank you. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. All right. Mosaic law was a conditional covenant and they broke it hundred times over. In fact, they broke it before they even made it to the promised land. They kept breaking. They broke it before Moses even got down off the mountain with the tablets in his hands. That's how quick they were to break this thing. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So, uh, the solution to this deal about Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven is being taken from you, from this people, and given to a people who will bear the fruit of it, is t- it's still talking about the Jewish people in both cases, but it's of this generation where it's being taken away, and it's of the tribulational generation where it's being bestowed. All right? And I hope you can understand that. And if there's any question about how um, people, the same people in different centuries can be considered different, I would uh, ask if the uh, American people of the 21st century are any different than the American people of the 18th century. And, uh, you know, when I, the more I read about the founding fathers and the more I read about the patriots and the more I read about what they stood for and what they would not stand for, and I wonder, are we the same people? Are we the same people? Well, in name, yes. In reality, are we? Are we even the same people? What about the same people who won World War II? Is this, is this generation of the same metal? Okay, so it's not, it's not unusual to refer to the same people as different people. If significant time has passed or if uh, uh, under different circumstances, that's very biblical. We have this in a variety of different ways. So don't... Uh, don't be confused over the word people that shows up in verse 43. All right. So this message does not reveal the transition from Israel to the church, as replacement theology would tell you. This message reveals the transition from the age of the incarnation to the age of the tribulation. And they're both within the dispensation of Israel. I'll put a chart up for you here in a moment. This message does not reveal the transition from the dispensation of Israel to the dispensation of the church. That's not what this passage is dealing with, even if the replacement theology people tell you that it is. What this message is revealing is the transition from two different ages within the dispensation of Israel, the age of the incarnation, first advent, to the age of tribulation, just prior to second advent, within the dispensation of Israel. And so here's your chart. <coughs> this, by the way, is printed in the back of the ABC reader, the plan of God reader. And you understand the, the God's program for the ages from Alpha to Omega. You understand the unfolding and how he entrusted his stewardship to the vested stewards, beginning with the angels and then with the Adamic race and then to Israel. Presently, it's the church, but God's not done with Israel. Understand that. So the church is a parenthesis within Israel's stewardship. We'll zoom in on that. The um, the uh, the church here is a parenthesis within Israel's stewardship. And when the church is gone, Israel resumes their stewardship. 
Okay. Now, Israel has already previously functioned under three different ages. They operated under the age of promise between uh, Abraham and Moses. They operated under the age of law <coughs> from Moses until the baptism of Christ of the River Jordan. Then for... <coughs> Then for three and a half years, the age of the incarnation followed the age of law. Remember, Jesus was born under the law. But when Jesus was ministering as an ordained, anointed, spirit-indwelled prophet to Israel, that three and a half year span of time while he walked the earth was something different. Something greater than the law was here. And the conditions and circumstances were so unique during that ministry of Jesus Christ that not only me, but several pastors break that out as a different age separate from the age of law. Something greater than the temple was here, something greater than the law was here, uh, that uh, God himself, he came to his own and his own received him not. So the age of the incarnation is what's dealt with when he says that the kingdom has been taken away from you, from this people. The very age that could have accepted, that could have welcomed their king. And it's being given now to a people who will bear the fruit of it. And it's not talking about crossing into the church. Skip over the purple church altogether, okay? Get back to the pink Israel. I'm sorry that it's pink. It was supposed to be red, but what can I say? Um, everything kind of went pastel at a certain point. So... Um, Israel has two ages remaining, the age of the tribulational reign, uh, the seven-year period of tribulation, and then the age of the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of the son of David on the throne of David in Jerusalem, the, uh, the millennial reign. So that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the transition from the age of the incarnation to the age of tribulation. And at that point then, the one who endures to the end will be saved. All right. The one who's faithful in this age of tribulation will be the ones who will enter into the kingdom of heaven there, the age of the millennial reign. So this message reveals the transition from the age of incarnation to age of tribulation, both of which are within the dispensation of Israel. And it's the age of tribulation. Whoops, let me get back. There. there. No. There we go. Um, it's this tribulation here. The tribulation is what enters into the millennial kingdom. Okay? But you know what Jesus is saying in this verse? It could have been. And I don't know how, because I don't know where the church would have showed up, but somehow, consider the what if, uh, they had not rejected their king. Consider the what if. What if it had been the age of the incarnation that had accepted what if it was something more than just simply the children and women and prostitutes and tax collectors that were singing Hosanna there on, on Palm Monday? What if it had been the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests and the, the Jewish people at large? What if they accepted their king? You know, the, uh, the kingdom was at hand. John the Baptist said it was at hand. Jesus said it was at hand. And uh, could have even ushered in millennial reign right from there. But no. It's taken from them and it's given to the age of tribulation. And Israel's going to have to go through their tribulation then to uh, enter into the kingdom. All right. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And so those who reject the Christ at his first advent are doomed. There is uh, such coming wrath and the destruction of the city and the dispersion of the, of the Jewish nation. It's terrible. But on whomever it falls, that second advent, when the stone made without hands comes crashing down out of heaven and it crushes Nebuchadnezzar's statue, the statue with the head of gold, the chest of, of uh, silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, the feet partly of iron, partly of clay, and the stone smashes it and it blows away like dust, scattered him like dust. Same language. It's the same imagery. It's the same language. This is, uh, this is an allusion to the, uh, the millennial kingdom coming and bringing it in to the Gentile dominion. All right. 
So when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this, his parables, they understood he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Those terrible people. Point D then. Killing Jesus is now mandatory. They were going to do it anyway. Killing Jesus is now mandatory, but must be done in a way that turns the crowd to their side. They've been plotting to kill him since, oh, I forget which episode, way back in the pre-in ministry. Killing Jesus is now mandatory, but must be done in a way that turns the crowd to their side. They cannot risk losing the crowd. They cannot risk losing the crowd. None of the Sanhedrin really can afford to. Um, and the Pharisees, perhaps most of all, because it's the crowd that gives the Pharisees their edge over the Sadducees in their inner party conflicts. Uh, the Sadducees at least can make some kind of claim to priestly lineage, and they can at least make claim to uh, spiritual legitimacy based on temple worship and Levitical tribal status and so forth. The Pharisees don't have that. The Pharisees um, have their scholarship. They have their uh, understanding of the Scriptures, their ability to teach the Scriptures. Uh, and more than anything else, the Pharisees have the popular support of the people. Okay? The Pharisees can turn out a crowd. The Pharisees can get people in the street making noise and making trouble. And uh, if uh, that's probably why they hated Jesus so much. Because the crowds that were normally playthings in the Pharisees' hands were starting to follow after this Galilean carpenter. <laughs> and you know that had to hurt the, uh, the Pharisees. Must be done in a way that turns the crowd to their side. They feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. All right. You know, this is kind of like, I think, it's kind of like we were talking about the liberalism. Uh, while the ladies were in there praying, the, us guys were over in the other room. We were talking about the liberalism that's seeping into so many of the Protestant seminaries today. And how, uh, you know, false teaching can come in and uh, amillennialism and, and rejection of the rapture and things like that. And they can, uh, they can infest in the uh, seminaries and the schools and, and among the, the hierarchy of the different denominations and so forth. And it's interesting is that a lot of times these seminary trained pastors actually get out of school and go into these, you know, so we're talking about Southern Baptists, but they get into some of these churches and those pesky people. The common people, the average believer in the pew, um, they still believe in the rapture. And they still believe in the second advent. They still believe in the coming millennium. And they still believe, they still believe their Bible is the thing. And they haven't uh, been sucked up into all of these, um, you know, dream, this dream world approach to things that sometimes academia gets lost in. So, uh, as I read, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Well, how... How rude of them. How inconsiderate. What do they know? You know, those, those rubes, you know, uh, they, they should just listen to what the Pharisees tell them. Who do they, you know, why do they, where do they come from thinking they can think for themselves kind of a thing? All right. We have 20 minutes left, so we'll get a start on this. And um, we'll get as far as we get. And then, like I say, we've got three Wednesdays off, and we'll come back to this um, after, after the break. All right. Remember, it's only two weeks for Kiev, but the third week is because of the uh, Schaefer Seminary Conference that follows. And it just it was unfortunate that it bumped up like that adjacent to the two-week uh, Kiev trip. I couldn't control the scheduling of either item. All right. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And you compare it. It's not a parallel text, but you do need to compare it to the Message given in Luke 14, verses 16 through 24, all right? They're not strict parallels. It's the same story. It's the same message, but they were given at different stages. Luke 14 was back in the Prean ministry. It was, it was weeks and months ago. Uh, Matthew 22 is uh, on Tuesday of the Passion Week, okay? There are distinctions to be found in the two accounts, even though they are the same message delivered multiple times. We don't have any issue with that. Uh, it's very common. Christ taught a number of, of messages multiple times in different settings to different audiences. Every, every preacher does. I'm, I'm doing that. I'm taking a First Corinthians study that we did years ago, and I'm taking that to Kiev and teaching it to a group over there. So that, uh, that sort of thing happens. Parable of the marriage feast. Let's take a look at it. Jesus spoke to them again in parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. 
And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, we have to evaluate this verse and other passages from the standpoint of where does sovereignty stop and where does volition step in? Does one control the other? Are they both uh, in, in tension with each other? How does this work? I mean, if God's sovereign, why doesn't he just make them show up? All right, they were unwilling to come again. He sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. You know, it's kind of like um, the days of Noah. They're eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. They're caught up in temporal life, just living daily life. Don't have time for this stuff. What are you talking about? And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways and as many as you find there invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out to the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner gas. And we're going to have to work on this because you say, well, why are evil people being brought into the wedding feast? Okay. Well, they were invited. <clears throat> but when the king came in to look over the dinner gas, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. All right. This is what we're going to be dealing with. Now, I should have probably read the Luke account first. That's all right. Um, let's go to Luke 14 and uh, try to pick up on some of the differences here in the accounts. I regret that I didn't do Luke first. That's all right. Luke 14, 16-24. You're going to notice some differences. And those differences are going to reflect, I believe, the intensity of um, the approaching cross. I think they're going to reflect the urgency of uh, our Savior's mindset in, uh, in these things. Luke 14, verses 16-24. through 24. But he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. Notice a couple differences there. Yeah, it's, it's a big dinner. It's not necessarily a wedding feast, but it's a big dinner. And, uh, and there's no son that's mentioned. There's just, and he's not a king. It's just a man. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slaves to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. First one said to him, I bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I have married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. Okay. So uh, there's differences here from this account to the one we just finished reading over in Matthew. And uh, I think there's similarities, of course. In that they're all caught up in temporal life issues. They're all caught up in daily life. My business, my farm, my wife. Um, you know, appreciate the invitation. We've got other priorities kind of thing. Uh, but there are differences. And what, uh, do you notice anything that's missing in this, in this uh, compared to what we just read over there in Matthew? All right, we'll touch on it here in just a moment. Then uh, verse 21, the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry, said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave uh, said, Master, what you have commanded has been done, and there still is, there still there is room. So stage one, he had the original invited guest. Stage two, uh, he goes to, uh, to get the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. And then now there's going to be a stage three because there's still room. And so the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. And if you were here when we taught this, you understand compel is uh, not the best of renderings for that. But strongly urge them, strongly beg them, plead with them, invite them in the most forceful terms. Don't coerce their volition, but invite them strongly, plead with them to come in. 
so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. That very first crowd to whom the invitation was originally given, they rejected it. And they shall not taste of my dinner. All right, so there's, there are differences. There are differences between these accounts. And we want to understand. I believe, it's the, I believe it's the same message. I don't believe the differences are so strong that we have to consider this as two different messages. But I believe it's getting more focused now in the days approaching the cross. And I believe that the, um, some of the other changes are, were made because the, uh, it was unnecessary to talk about the blind and the lame and the crippled and so forth when he already told them that the, uh, the prostitutes and tax collectors are getting in before you get in. So I'll show you what I'm talking about here. Back to Matthew 23 then. Subpoint so A. Jesus delivered a shorter version of this message during the last Judean and Prean phase of his ministry. And if you want to go back and re-listen to that lesson again, it's Prean Ministry, uh, episode 21. Uh, episode 21 in the Prean Ministry. Jesus delivered a shorter version of this message during the last Judean and Prean phase of his ministry. This version, point B. Am I going too fast? Sorry. I'll drink coffee and clear my throat. How about that? Jesus delivered a shorter version of this message during the last Judean and Prean phase of his ministry. <clears throat> There's really no way to coincide the two tellings. One was in Jerusalem, one was not. One was in the Passion Week, one was weeks earlier. They were two separate events in two separate localities, but I do believe they were the same overall message representing the same truth um, with the differences in details um, getting particularly focused because the cross was coming into closer perspective. So Luke 14, 16 through 24. We can view it as a parallel text even though it's not a strict parallel text. All right, differences then. Point B, this version of the parable has some unique details. Has some unique details. And you've already picked up on a little bit of it. The fact that this one mentions a king, this one mentions a son, this one calls it a wedding feast. Okay, This brings it more into a, into a vivid focus because of the nature of the invitation of the kingdom to the Jewish people. But here's three other things. First of all, the detailed description of the readiness in verse 4 of Matthew 23, 4. In Luke, those details weren't given. The description of the readiness. The idea that um, the, uh, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered. Those are details. Those are specific details about um, the, the actual procedural uh, steps that have to be taken in order for this event to take place. Um, and why is that important? Because this is the very week in which those details are taking place. On Palm, on, on Palm Monday, understand that, on, on Nisan 10, what happens on Nisan 10? The Passover lamb has been selected. They are removed from the remainder of the flock and they're set apart. The ones that are going to be slain on Friday are set apart on Monday. The Passover lamb has been selected. The, the preparations are, are underway this very week for the Passover to take place. And so during this week, while those preparations are undergoing, he adds that detail to this telling of the, of the parable. He adds that information into this uh, version of the, of the parable. But, uh, so my, uh, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat and livestock are all butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So we have a detailed description of the readiness. We also have here a description of violence towards the slaves. This version of the parable has a unique detail in terms of Matthew 22, 6, the violence that's inflicted upon the slaves. We're told in verse 5, they paid no attention and, one went, and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. Okay. In Luke, we had some other details about, well, you know, I've got oxen, 
uh, that have got to work, right? You've got to plant a field or uh, just married a wife and so forth. They all had excuses. It's similar to verse 5. But nowhere in Luke do they actually inflict violence on any of the slaves. Here, though, in this telling of the story, the slaves are the objects of violence. Okay? And once again, what, what, where are we positioned here in the telling of this parable? We're positioned in the, in the Passion Week. We're pos- positioned uh, you know, a day, two days before he's going to en- encounter his own violence at their hands. Right? And so the idea of uh, seizing the slaves and mistreating them and killing them uh, is a difference between this account and the Luke account. And it's very much harmonious with the parable of the landowner that, uh, that we saw where they killed the slaves, they killed more slaves, and then they beat and they killed the son. So it's very much compatible with these messages that they've been given. And then thirdly, the destruction of their city in verse 7. That was not a feature anywhere in the Luke account. The destruction of their city in Matthew 22, 7. The king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed these murderers and set their city on fire. That wasn't included in the Luke account, but you think it's on the Lord's mind this week? You bet. Okay. And he's already wept over Jerusalem and he's already uh, seen the, the, the wreckage that's coming and the destruction of the city that's going to occur at the hands of the Romans. He's addressed that in some of the, uh, some of the classes since he arrived here and since Palm Monday. So those are some differences. This, uh, this version omits the step, point C, this version omits the poor and crippled and blind and lame. That was really a significant element in the Luke 14 story, but Jesus leaves it out here. He goes straight from these guys that rejected it out to the highways and hedges, out to the, high, the, the main highways. Why, uh, why was this intermediate step not necessary? Well, I believe because in the immediate preceding of this message he gave them the parable of the two sons that already communicated that truth in the parable of the two two sons he told him he said the harlots and tax collectors are getting into the kingdom before you do so this version omits the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame and i hope we can understand this this is to me some of the things that i find hard to illustrate um because i spend so much of my life reading ancient history, and I find that by and large, most, most folks don't. And that's not, you know, criticism or whatever. I'm not knocking anyone here, people saying, you know, read more history. But the more you read of history, the more um, suited you're going to be to understand the day and age in which the Bible takes place, the day and age in which it was written. And, and the less you're going to be trapped into taking 21st century American sensitivities and, and those values and trying to read them back into a, a, an age in which it's just ludicrous to assume that such values would even be in existence. Okay. And so things like, um, and, and things like social um, class distinctions, the idea that these Pharisees are up here in the high nobility. Okay. And the, poor and crippled and blind and lame, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they're the underclass. The, not, not just lower class, but underclass. They're the outcast, unclean. They're, okay, yeah, they're racially Jewish, but they might as well be Gentiles because that's how we're going to treat them. We're going to treat them like tax collectors and Gentiles. Okay? Um, and this stratification of society and so forth. I think uh, in a lot of ways... Europe has a better handle on this because they still have their fragmented class distinctions with their lords and their ladies and their nobility and their and their and their whatnot. But our country was founded as a rejection of all of that. In fact, the the Constitution was even so written where we don't even acknowledge titles of nobility. Okay. Uh, I think the intelligentsia has done what they can to try to recreate it anyway in the political classes in the and the Ivy League and some of the, the, the media uh, classes and so forth. I think there, there definitely is in the consciousness of some, but, you know, it's remarkable. The only people in this country that even care about class distinctions are the ones that are trying to manipulate class distinctions to control things. I find it really, really an interesting facet. Side trip. I don't, I don't want to go there. But the... Um, 
so there are many things in the scripture, and when we talk about slavery, that's another thing. It's, it's touchy, it's sensitive, it's, you know, because of the history of slavery in our country, and now the the freedom of the slaves in our country, and the things there. So when you when you teach in Bible passages related to slavery, sometimes you you're getting into realms that that are awkward to to talk about. There's other things too, but we'll just uh, take it for what we see it here. Uh, this this version does omit the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. Uh, I think that the uh, the rebuke in the parable of the two sons was already crystal clear, and he didn't feel necessary to uh, to repeat it in this story. Luke's account had the final call going to the highways and the hedges. Matthew's account has the final call call with a C. Matthew's account has the final call going out to the main highways, but I believe it's the same final call. Highways and hedges are main highways. It's the final call. And the final call is reaching to the ends of the earth. The final call is reaching through the highways and the, uh, remember in the, in the age in which this was written, the, the Roman roads was the, the supreme pinnacle of human transportation right there. And when you're reaching into the main highways, when you're reaching to the main roads, you're talking to the ends of the earth. Jesus told his disciples they were going to carry their gospel from Jerusalem to, Jeru- to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost ends of the earth. And it would be the Roman roads that would carry it in the uh, in the early stages, highways and hedges. That's why we support missions. That's why we're thankful for missionaries and evangelists and folks that go out. So there's the distinction there. The final call brought both good and bad. The final call brought in both good and bad. Now understand. Final call, by the time we get, dispensationally speaking now, final call is going to be tribulation. Understand that. Okay, final call is tribulation. Uh, the, the final uh, opportunities to accept entrance into the city are going to happen right before Armageddon, right before the tribulation comes to an end. And it's going to bring in both good and bad. We might knock me out. i got 30 seconds. Can I knock this out? <laughs> Not enough for a whole class three weeks from now. Understand this good and bad. Haven't we? See, we've already had this. Remember the the kingdom of heaven parables, the the tares among the wheat. Remember that, good and bad, and good and bad were were caught up together. The good wheat, the bad tares, and they could not be sorted until when? Until second advent, until the end of the age, until they were gathered together. The wheat was gathered into the barn. Believers come into the uh, millennial kingdom, and the and the chaff was thrown into the fire. Unbelievers cast into hell. Likewise, the parable of the dragnet, Matthew 13. And this dragnet is cast into the sea, and what gets hauled out of the sea? Well, there was good and bad. And they had to be sorted. And when were they going to be sorted? At the end of the age. At the end of the age. So this uh, last call invitation to both the good and the bad is, uh, is compatible with the kingdom of heaven parables. Parable of the terrors among the wheat. Parables of the dragnet. Understand that calling and choosing are distinct. Many and few. Many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. It upsets me that so much of um, uh, Calvinist theology and even Arminian theology blends the ideas between calling and choosing. They say, oh, it's all the same. No, it's not the same. Because many are called and few are chosen. How can they be the same? Okay. The calling is the invitation. And the invitations for everybody. But who's selected? Is everybody selected? No. Only the elect. That's right. Only the chosen. So understand that. And we don't know the difference because we're not sovereign. We're not foreign. We don't have foreknowledge. God does. So don't think that you can limit your evangelism. Well, I'm only going to give the gospel to the elect. Well, how are you going to know that? No, you give the gospel to the all creation, you're told. Preach the gospel into all creation. Because you don't know um, who the few are that have been chosen, but we know that many are called. So we, get, we understand the distinctions there. I think we do pretty well. Finally, the false responses to the call are not acceptable. False responses to the call are not acceptable. The idea that you can come on your own terms. The idea that you can come just any old way you want. And uh, you can show up at the wedding feast without the wedding clothes. 
You accepted his invitation, but you didn't accept his invitation in the way that he extended it to be dressed in the clothing he provided. Say, you think you can come wearing your old clothes? No, you've got to wear the new clothes he gives you. And be like, well, I believe Jesus died for my sins, but you're not trusting in that for, your, for your, uh, the redemption of your soul. You're just simply acknowledging factual information as if somehow the right information will uh, get you in the door. How did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. There's no answer you can give. When you're not dressed, when you're not clothed in his righteousness. Remember, wedding clothes are the clothes of righteousness. If you're not clothed in righteousness, then you're simply making the inadequate um, false response to the call. Okay, I apologize for the quickness of it, but given the uh, lengthy hiatus that we're going to have here shortly, I wanted to, uh, didn't want to leave you hanging for the three weeks without that there. So if that was too fast, then you can get the MP3 off the website and uh, listen to it again. Slow it down and listen to it as much as you want. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thy word is truth. And we thank you for the privilege we have to study to show ourselves approved and to, uh, to search the Scriptures diligently to see if these things are so, Father, to rightly divide the Word of Truth, everything that you expect us to do. I thank you, Father, that it's the Word of God that's the eternal standard. It's the Word of God that's the absolute authority. I thank you, Father, that, uh, that all three times our Savior was tempted in the wilderness, all three times He answered with, It is written. He took Satan straight back to the written text of, of Scripture and answered every temptation with, with, It is written. And I thank you for that, Father, and I thank you in Christ's name. Amen.